I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If this is your first time hearing the show, I've got great news. It's a really simple idea. We've all had educators in our lives who inspired us and helped shape who we are, and we want you to be a part of our show. Every educator we have on this podcast, whether a teacher, coach, or professor is nominated by the folks who listen. So please do tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the teachers in your community who deserve a spotlight. Email us with your nominations at teacherslounge at niu.edu. That's teacherslounge at niu.edu. This week on the show, we have Patricia P.J. Hartnoss. She's an author and a retired fourth grade teacher. She has a self-publishing company with her daughter that's called Whistle Slick Press. So fun to say, Whistle Slick, Whistle Slick. And she even runs a writing camp out of an old 1800s era one-room schoolhouse that she helped restore. He pulled out an 1871 journal from this school and a 1923 journal from this school, and he gave it to me. And he said, take this and use this for your project. And he says, I trust you. And so I did. And I got one of those metal detectors and went around the school and we pulled up tons and tons of artifacts. But one of the coolest artifacts down by the creek was uh, the old desk legs from the little wooden desk because it was iron. And the roots grew around the iron and held it into the earth and into the creek. And we pulled that out. We talk about the writing camps that she holds at the one-room schoolhouse. We talk about watermelon spitting contests, coal mines, and a bookmobile. We also get into her book series like the anti-bullying Belden Boy books and so much more. That's coming up here on Teacher's Lounge. So it shouldn't be a shocker that my conversation with PJ is a lot about writing and reading. And much to many people's dismay, and I'm very sure PJ's, only one of every three fourth graders in Illinois are proficient at reading. And believe it or not, Illinois is still in the middle of the pack when you look at the whole country. And I went on a mission to find out why we're struggling to teach kids how to read and how educators want to fix it. Reading is not natural. That's one thing David Page says a lot of people just don't understand. He's a literacy professor and director of the Jerry Johns Literacy Clinic at Northern Illinois University. Almost all of us learn to speak naturally. We're exposed to people and and speech just naturally emerges. However, reading does not naturally emerge. Now what he's getting at is that there's a scientific process to teaching someone how to read. You can't just plop them in a room full of Dr. Seuss and Charles Dickens books and hope they soak it up. Now, that might be a silly example, but Page says that in many cases, reading curricula have strayed from reading research. And you can see it in test scores. National Association of Education Progress reading scores fell by 3% this year. Three points doesn't sound like much. It is huge. It is a massive, massive drop. It's bad, but he says it's also not new. Reading scores have been bad for a long time. So how do we fix it? How should we teach kids to read then? Page says that it starts with phonics. Phonics lessons teach the relationship between letter combinations and the sounds they make. For example, the word cat has the ka sound from the C and the at sound from the A and T, like in hat or bat. Now that might sound simple, but he says it is a critical part of the process. If you can't get to where you can pronounce the words fluently, you never really get much to comprehension. It's very difficult because you're always focusing your attention. Here's another word. How do I say that word? Unfortunately, Page says many schools and educators don't build that phonics foundation strong enough before moving on to other parts of reading like vocabulary knowledge and language structure. 
Pam Riley is an instructional coach at the Plano School District in Kendall County. She and a team of teachers have spent the past few years revamping their reading instruction. And we're in a classroom at Emily G. Johns Elementary School where she's showing me a colorful illustration of what's called Scarborough's Reading Rope. There are eight strands that make up the rope, three at the top and five at the bottom. The top side represents word recognition skills like phonics, and the bottom represents language recognition, which gives context to the words and the story that they're reading them in. 30 years ago, we really focused on phonics and then realized we can't forget about this side of Scarborough's reading rope. And I think the pendulum swing went more this way and not as much on the foundational skills. Now we're swinging back where they're saying we have to have these foundational skills. The pandemic was sort of a reset button for Riley. She researched structured literacy and worked with her elementary school teachers for a year on a new program, relearning how to teach phonics. And it included third grade teachers who weren't used to teaching phonics because they had thought that kids had had it down by then. They met every week over lunch to pour over data, and Riley says it's working. We had green across the board for our fall scores for growth. So we are headed in the right direction. David Page calls reading instruction a race from the day a child starts school until the second or third grade. Who decides whether or not a child's a good reader? The child decides that. They make that decision. And if they've decided that they're not a good reader, then it just goes down a very slippery, steep slope that's not good. They might act out to avoid reading in class. It might make them anxious or ashamed. And that's why Paige says resources and support have to be there the minute they step into school. Pam Riley says they're monitoring student progress so they can jump in with that support for whichever strand of the reading rope a child might need help with. But the race is on. And Jessica Handy wants to make sure people realize just what's at stake if we fail students. She's the policy director at Stand for Children, an educational equity group that advocates for education policy. If a student in third grade is unable to read proficiently, they're four times more likely to drop out of high school. And if they're low income, that number goes up to six times. And she says there are schools of every size and demographic that aren't teaching reading well. But in a wealthy district, parents can pay for tutors if their child is struggling to read. It is inexcusable that a kid's ability to learn how to read is based on whether their parents can afford that or not. She's been working on the Right to Read Act, originally introduced in the Illinois legislature this spring, but currently being rewritten with an aim towards reintroducing it next year. It could include non-mandatory training modules for teachers and teacher candidates about evidence-based literacy, tools if districts want to evaluate how well their curriculum works, and short-term grants for schools that want to start a new program but can't afford it. Handy says that Mississippi is the clearest case study for why statewide literacy policy matters. They went from being, you know, 49th or 50th in reading to now they're middle of the road with us. They're actually a little bit higher than us. But there are other states where comprehensive literacy policies didn't get those kind of results. And Handy says that's why they're trying to take time and include as many stakeholders as they can to implement it correctly. Back in Plano, along with evidence-based methods, they're trying to promote a genuine love of reading throughout the school. Every staff member in the building displays their favorite childhood book. 
Riley and the fourth grade teachers even dressed up as the main characters from their book for Halloween this year. She donned red pajamas and a scarf for her miraculous journey of Edward Tulane costume. And you can even find a customized book vending machine in the hallway where students can earn tokens and cash them in for more books. It's kind of fun, maybe even a little bit silly, but they'll tell you that anything that gets kids reading and excited to read is well worth it. All right, now it's time for my conversation with the wonderful PJ Hartnoss. We start off by talking about the Batmobile of Whistle Slick Press, the slick vintage car they take around the Midwest to sell their books, the Mary Jane Bookmobile. Are you busy these days on the weekends with with taking out the Mary Jane Bookmobile out to different uh, events and schools and festivals and stuff? Yeah, not so much schools. I wish there were more schools, to be honest with you. But yeah, yeah. and I live right across from the school. I don't live here anymore. I'm at my daughter's house. She, they purchased our, our, my grandmother's house. So it was her great grandmother's house. And um, I'm in her studio right now, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's right across the street. But and so I've got it out there for everybody to see, and it is the cutest little mobile. For people that that, that aren't familiar with Whistle Slick and, and and even the mobile, I think people are again that you really get out of kick out of the Mary Jane bookmobile, yeah. which is this old vintage 1953. I want to say, got it. yeah, beautiful like jade green almost truck, it's almost like a teal. A teal. A teal. Yeah. yeah. How did how yeah. did that happen? How did you start doing that with with the bookmobile? You know, it was um, it was around 2019, and we were looking for a little bit of a boost with with our 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 whistle slick products or our books, the books I write, and um, and we what my daughter who is my we do a mother daughter. Uh, kind of thing now. And she's my right arm. And she went ahead and went online, found this place called, I'm going to plug for them, Fast Lane in St. Charles, Missouri. And on their website was this beautiful little green truck. Um, And and it was very, to us, even though it was a farm truck, it was a feminine looking truck. So kids named her right away, Mary Jane. Um, So um, we we just kept our fingers crossed and we did the negotiating uh, over the phone, you know, done and they put her on a flatbed and they were trying to beat a tornado so they they drove from missouri right up through uh illinois up to galena up in the corner of the state and it took them many hours but um here she comes down the street on that flatbed and we're just jumping up and down for joy it was um it was really nice it was she was beautiful the only thing is is when we took her off there was a wrench dangling on underneath the carriage (laughs) but so they were probably doing last minute work on her but she was as pristine as possible And, and then we wrote a book about her and that's mary jane there's Mary Jane. I love yeah. that. So you guys take Mary Jane to these different events, load yeah. up books in the truck bed. I imagine this time you're throw a couple pumpkins up there, get it seasoned. Bale the hay. Yeah. Buckets of my books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fantastic. So you, you wrote that book about the truck. And then I'd be, I'm curious, so far with Whistles, like how many books have you written at this point? Um, I'm up to uh, this year. I should be, or actually beginning next year, should be about 12 books. Twelve so, books. Twelve books. Yeah, I'm a literacy teacher. I can't help myself, but um, I've got them all right here. If you ever want me to show you them, but they're all they all have a different story and a different reason, but they all have good messages for kids. So, yeah, that's, that's my goal. So you're up to a dozen books. You mentioned you're a, you're a teacher. 
and you taught literacy. Tell us a little, a little bit about your career, how long you taught and all that stuff. Oh, geez. Well, um, I taught, you know, I had no inclination of going to uh, college at all. I graduated from a Wheaton High School here in St. Francis. And I, you know, my all my friends were going off to college and I instead traveled. So how I got started in this, um, you know, I always had the idea that, um, you know, I'd eventually go to school, didn't know what I was going to do. But I traveled to Paris, France. And and on the flight over in the middle of the night, I was turning 21 years old. So um, I picked up a book in the airport and it was about Marie Antoinette, who was the queen of France. Yeah. One that lost her head. So during the French Revolution. So I'm reading this book. We finally, you know, come into Paris, go to our hotel room and just, you know, crash and wake up to the sound of French voices. You know, you're thinking, where am I? What's going on? But a couple of days later, we ended up going to the concierge, which is a which is a place where um, is a prison. And this is where they kept Marie Antoinette before she was killed before she was taken off to the guillotine. And so here I am and I've got my camera and I'm, I've got the old Instamatics. I'm sitting there taking pictures like crazy I'm on the tour and the French um, tour guide is going on and on. And uh, I just I say to myself, I can't believe I just read about this on the way over. And here I am in this, this place. Oh, you could feel the vibes. It was great. So I'm still taking pictures. I turn around and the tour is gone. They have left. And I'm thinking, where did they go? Where did they go? Oh, you know, I'm still going to take a couple more pictures. So I turned to try to get out of the jail cell. And I was locked in there. And I'm sitting there trying to open the cell door like crazy. And, and I thought, oh, well, I'll take some more pictures. And I feel like I'm in a Nancy Drew mystery at this point. <laughs> oh, it was it was really. But it was that turning point. Well, the 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 guide came back and was probably swearing at me in French. I have no idea. So eventually but, you uh, did get out of the cell. <laughs> eventually I got out of the cell, but it was just that thing that clicked that I realized I loved history. And, um, and, you know, and so from that point on, I started to go to college. I went to um, Elmhurst College for education. Yeah. I, I went to uh, Northern for my uh, master's. And uh, yeah, and then things started to, then I was given an assignment. Um, our whole class, it was one of our last assignments at Northern. And what an assignment it was. And it was it was pretty, I suppose, straightforward. They said, oh, we want you to go out in the field and uh, we want you to do something educational for children. And so everybody's saying, well, I'm going to a park. I'm going to make this or I'm going to do that. I'm going to create a program for this park district or that or that. And so they're bringing in all kinds of posters. I went out to Galena because we had a family home. So I go and I speak to um, the head of the Green Space Committee. And I said, what can I do for children? And she says, well, you can pull out garlic mustard. That would help us a lot. <laughs> That's great, but it has nothing to do with kids. And she says, well, you could try to get this little one-room schoolhouse going. She says, many people have tried in the past and it didn't work out. Um, maybe you could do something with it. And I thought, okay, I could educate children about what it was like in a schoolhouse, a one-room schoolhouse so long ago. Um, the, the, the school was built in 1859 and um, and that would be educational. So she says, you know, go up there. It's on that hiking hill. And I said, yeah, I passed that before. And she says, so it's Belden School and, um, and see what you can do. But here, before you go, here's the name of a gentleman farmer from Stockton. 
His name was Bob Kleckner. And I said, okay. And she says, call him. He's a real gruff fellow. And he's probably one of the reasons that this never got off the ground because people were sort of scared off. So and this is I, this old 1800s one room schoolhouse. It's like kind of in the woods, right? It is in the woods. It never used to be in the woods, but it was on a prairie. And then the woods grew up around. Right. It. It's very, very Anne of Green Gables, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. It is. So uh, it was it was a wonderful thing. But um, I called Bob and, um, you know, he answers the phone and being as gruff as he is, he sits there and he says, hello, hello, hello. And, you know, normally people go, oh, back off. But he he was he was great. And he and I became the best of friends. He even called me his girlfriend, but I should never let his wife know that he was, <laughs> he was 85 years old, approximately wonderful man. And he had gone a couple years prior. He had this, he was a very well-traveled man, by the way, World War II and, and beyond. He had been all over the world, but he had um, gone dumpster diving to the dismay of his wife. And he pulled out an 1871 journal from this school and a 1923 journal from this school. And he gave it to me. And he said, take this and use this for your project. And he says, I trust you. And so I did. And I got one of those metal detectors and went around the school and we pulled up tons and tons of artifacts. But one of the coolest artifacts down by the creek was uh, the old desk legs from the little uh, desks, wooden desks, it was iron. And the roots grew around the iron and held it into the earth and into the creek. And we pulled that out. And so, yeah, so it took a couple of years. Uh, one, I did a proposal, did my uh, Northern assignment, was all done with that. Um, and then I presented to um, this, this committee out there in, in Eagle Ridge and uh, they were very much interested in it. And I can't believe he pulled out those journals, which were said from like the 18, 1800s up to like the 1920s. Like, like, how long were those in the garbage? And like, just how long all of those things waited for someone to discover them, right? Well, right. But his it was his hobby to collect old school journals from all the schools in the mid in the um the driftless area up in very interesting hobby. Yeah, it yeah. is. His garage was full of them. So he had had it for quite some time. But, you know, the, the town was throwing them out because consolidation of the schools and one sure. of the schools was in 1943. So they had all this on their shelves and they said, you know, everything's computerized. Why do we need it? So in the garbage it went and he retrieved a heck of a lot. And you got to read some of these old, old oh, yeah. journals. Oh, yeah. I've got a what lot are, of stories up here. I was going to say, what are some of the stories from those old journals that stick out to you when you think back on it now? Well, that's a good question. A lot of it was you read between the lines. You see what, you know, all of a sudden there was a teacher that was just hired and now she's gone. And now she's replaced by a male schoolmaster. So you're wondering what's going on. Um, but, you know, the things that really stuck out, and I've got a couple stories for you, really quick ones. Please, was, please. Yeah, Big Bob Kleckner, as we call them. He gave me the name of a list of students that had gone to the school before it closed in 43. So I, he says, call them. They'll have stories you want to hear. So I said, all right. So one of them was um, this little girl when she went to school in the spring. You had to wear high rubber boots because you did when you're walking through the, the, the prairie, you don't want to get bit by a rattler. And rattlers were pretty prone in that area at that time. They're not anymore because of the highways and everything because they yeah. come from Mississippi. But um, they made it all the way 
to this area. So that was one. The other one was, um, and some of these were written in my first book. The other one was uh, when you're, you have a huge snowstorm and the snow rises and the fence posts are like this, but the snow rises like this. Um, you're just walking right over the fence posts to go to school. You're just stepping over it. But if you're not sure if there's school or not because of the snowstorm, you look up into the sky above where the school is. And if you see smoke coming out, then you know the teacher made it and you go. So otherwise you stay home. I love that. And you got to call and talk oh, to some yeah. of the people that went to this yeah. school in, in the early 40s? Right, right. They were in their 80s, some were in their 90s. And it was... Um, you know, there was a, a group of about 12 um, students left. And then as it took five years to basically restore the schoolhouse, they started to drop away, you know, and now no one is alive anymore. But uh, the one I really loved that I put in one of my stories was the farmer that farmed at the base of a hill that was right by Belden. And he said, I want to be buried standing up with my boots on in a and a jug of whiskey in my hand so I can watch my sons farm the property, farm the farm correctly, you know, the harvest. And and it was just uh, great stories, great stories. That's amazing. Yeah. And so it was like a five-year process to get five the school restored. Yeah. And now you're at the point where you guys have writing camps at the schoolhouse. Yeah, yeah. We, um, you know, I, I had to, I was teaching back in Glen Ellen, 145 miles away. So I, even though yeah. I was committee, I was doing my share with it, saying, I've got all these stories and these people are passing away. What do I do with them? I've got to preserve them, you know, out of the respect of, of, of the school and of the people. So that's when I started to write my first book. Um, uh, the Adventures of Peter McDougal. And so while I was doing that, you know, the school was uh, basically getting ready to open five years later. We had a big celebration. Abraham Lincoln was there, the character, and we had <laughs> 300 people lined up around, um, you know, just celebrating, anxious for the school to open. But as the year, as the year went on, um, I would bring my students from Glen Ellen out to Galena, and they had never heard of Galena. And, um, and it, I think this this really this this school helped to promote this. And then what we decided to do was to have a camp, and we do have a writing camp in there. And they're for children that are um, third grade and up. I mean, we can have high schoolers in there, and uh, they write and they illustrate their own hardcover book in three days with the help of my my literacy friends, my staff from Glen Ellen. We all come out and and we work with them, and they play old fashioned games. They play stickball. We have picnic lunches. We um, do watermelon spitting contests, and they meet new friends. And it is uh, it's remarkable. But it's only Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right after Fourth of July. What's the record for the for the watermelon spitting contest? Is, is there uh, been impressive far, shots? Far, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, there's something really like beautiful and I think kind of like full circle about, you know, you, you find out about this one room schoolhouse and yeah. you hear these stories from these people. And then those stories inspire you to write that yeah. first book. And then which in turn starts to fuel the book club or the, the writing club and the writing right. camp for other people to write those stories from that schoolhouse. You know, there's something very, very full circle about that whole process. Oh, it I'm is. I'm sure you've thought about that. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like something alive that um, just, just finding that school and having big Bob introduce me to uh, all the artifacts and the people and everything, you know, and the journals, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And there's, and there's so many arms to this and um, yeah, it's, it's, and you know, myself being a teacher for 35 years in Glen Ellen, that certainly helped, but, uh, but, you know, all in all, when I, when I speak to people, I talk about how your childhood influences you on what you do as an adult, what you become. And I'm sure that's true of what you're doing now, sitting behind the microphone. Exactly. Yeah. There's so much of the things that happen to us and, and the teachers that we have, when we're kids that makes such a big impact on us. And it's such a, I I know that you I'm sure have experienced this as, as both a teacher and as a parent that like the things that the way that you make kids feel when they're that age, you have no idea the things that they're going to take with them for the rest of their life. And it's such a responsibility. I have no idea what I'm going to say to this kid that he's going to stay with them for the next 80 years, you know? Yeah, no. And that, that can be the good and the bad, you know, I had wonderful teachers all the way up to third grade. I had a fantastic teacher in third grade. She used to wear three different wigs, you know, during the week. And Amazing. You know, a lot I love of that. And, the, and the nuns thought she was very risque and, you know, <laughs> but she, she was a lot of fun. But then the fourth grade teacher I had uh, was, was a bully. She really was a bully. And um, that's when my bullying uh, issues started um, with, with kids bullying me. And, and, you know, I can't say that I wasn't a bully probably back as I got older too. And I hate to admit that, but um, it, it was really, it left an impression on me that fourth grade, you know, I was on a roll. I was having such a good time in school and then it hit me like a wall. So fourth grade, all the way to eighth grade, it was, it was tough to have, to go to school every single day and have a teacher just not like you. And as a kid, you can feel it. And so it's no wonder, Peter, that when I decided to go back to school, that I ended up to be a fourth grade teacher. I wanted to get it right. Yes. And I hear that from so many different teachers, right? That the reason that they get into it isn't necessarily because they had all the best teachers, but almost on the contrary, that they want to be the teachers that they never had. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, exactly. I mean, I I could tell you stories that the bullying aspect, and it wasn't only her, she was a lay teacher, but it was the, it was a nun that we had and she was mean. Oh, classic Catholic school nun mean. Oh, she had a thing called patrol court and whatever, you would do any infraction. You waited till the end of the week before you went to patrol court. And then they opened the curtains and the the accordion curtains to make this one long room of sixth, seventh and eighth graders. And I was only in fourth grade trying to uh, punish me for a crime of talking during lunch. During lunch. During lunch. Not even during class. We weren't allowed to talk. And so my name was on the board all the time. But I just wanted to ask my friend, would you play with me at recess, please? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I got punished for that. And I can remember crying in the washroom. And, and then my friends are just in there. It'll be OK. It'll be OK. But then you go back and you sit in your seat at one o'clock in the afternoon, ready for the afternoon to start. And here comes your name across the speaker. You know, come down to the patrol court. And you're like, oh. So. The thing that was, again, a turning point was that my punishment was to write, write an essay. So fourth grade teacher, I become and a writer, I become. Yeah. 
came. It's like I defied the odds. Yeah, I say little did those nuns know that they were giving you the tools to your own liberation, right? That's right. That's right. So you are do, right. Do you think at the time that you obviously, you know, like it's so hard until you're older to have certain perspectives on that, like yeah. you know, what we talked about about like that you wanted to become an educator because you want to be the teacher you didn't have. Obviously, you mentioned the you know the travel. And going to Paris was something that, yeah. you know, ignited your love of history and wanting to go back right. to school. Is that something that you thought of later on of like, man, I had all these bad experiences when I was young. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's part of my my circuit. When I t- I used to talk to my fourth and fifth graders about that. Yeah. And, you know, when a teacher does that and lets down their guard and lets the children in her classroom know that she was like them, too. And she understands, um, especially when the kids would come in with bullying problems and we'd sit there and talk. And I'd say, you know, when I was your age, blah, 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 blah. You know, um, it, it just it relaxes them. You see the body the language and then they they start coming around while you're sitting there. And they're sitting on the floor. You're sitting on the little chairs and they'll just hug hug around you, even at fourth and fifth grade. Um, it just really sends a loving message. And I wanted to be that teacher that respected my students, loved them, valued them for whatever disabilities or incredible creative gifts they had. You know, they were good in my eyes. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, did you teach fourth grade for pretty much the whole time that you were an educator there? No, I started with first grade and then I went into fourth grade and then I had fourth and fifth. So I had the fourth graders the next year. Okay. Yeah. We we created such a family atmosphere. Um, And I told them, I said, you know, we're family in here. And when you walk out into the hallway or wherever you go in in the school and you're going to do something that you know you're not supposed to do. Think of us because you are representing our classroom, you know. And so, I mean, these kids were fabulous. Just the best years I ever had. But what I did the last year, last two years before I left is I was in the process of writing my third um, backwards bullying, my third book. And when I was um, teaching literacy, I would say to the kids, you know what, I'm, I'm writing this book. So what do you think should happen next? We've got the bully and we got the victim. What do you think should happen? Because this is where I'm stuck. I pretended like I was stuck. So, and they felt that they were the ones to go ahead and help me write it. So that was in fourth grade. Now it takes another year before you start to to publish it. So um, that year was a year that I um, I retired. So I ended up taking this book with the fourth graders that were now fifth graders, and I dedicated it to them. So they all got a copy, and it was a dedication of um, you know just love and the guidance that they gave me. But man, was that the best literacy lesson ever for those yeah. kids? Yeah, we actually uh, one of the one of the the last episodes that we did just before the pandemic of this show, we had an educator on there. He was he was in Chicago public schools. He's actually he just retired during the pandemic, and he was yeah. a, a high school teacher. And he started doing these what they called class sourced novels, which was that right. he would have his entire class collaborate. Each of them would write a section of it. And they, they ended up putting together these beautiful collections. There's some of them that are called uh, 30 Days of Empathy, I believe, was their first one. They're really fantastic. And it is something that like people think of writing as a, a book as such like an unwieldy, like 
huge, yeah. huge thing. But once you're able to break yeah. it down and give people the permission to do things, sometimes that's all it takes is someone, you know, that's not in your family to give you the permission to be like, no, you can actually do this. Right. Right. And that's exactly it, Peter, who, you know, it's not like you're, you're, you automatically say, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a writer. You know, right. yeah. I'm sure there are people that do do that. I was yeah. not. One of them. By the I, way, I, I remembered his name. Jay Rehack is the name of that other educator. We had on. Jay, uh, Jay Rehack. Yeah. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, but it, it comes upon you and it comes upon circumstance in your life. What is happening that, you know, you need to write about. And, and that was, that was a series. And, and, um, I'm just trying, it was a simple little thin book at first, but it included all the um, pictures of the old days in here of what Belden school used to look like in, in the uh, country, um, in the field. I don't know if you can really see yeah. it. But it is uh -huh. a beautiful little schoolhouse, but we also included, um, the cursive, the, the journal pages. And when I taught cursive, which I wasn't supposed to teach cursive, but I'm sure I did. I closed my door and did it anyway. Um, the they all told me in fourth grade that we were going to have to learn cursive. And I, I studied so hard and then we got to the next grade and then I never had to use it ever again. But I you just have to sign your name, right? I can, yeah. So I, I learned enough. I signed my name. I can do that. In fact, it's probably better than the way I can print. Thank God that I'm right. a journalist in an age that I can type yeah. on a computer because my handwriting yeah. is abhorrent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were, they were always so adamant that, you know, we were going to do cursive. We started learning it and then they just, tossed it aside for the rest of my education. Oh, that, that just makes me sick, you know? <laughs> and, and you know, when I taught cursive, I also taught social studies, obviously history, yeah. social studies. And I taught the American Revolution and I pulled out the Declaration of Independence. And I said, look at the names here. Look at how beautiful their artistic quality of signing their name is. You know why? Because that demonstrated how educated they were. That's what they wanted. You didn't see anybody with a big X you know, at the bottom of the Declaration of Independence. And look closer, I would say, look at how shaky their handwriting is. You know why? Because they were considered traitors. And right. they knew that they were in trouble if they put their name there. So boy, did that not only help the kids into the Revolutionary War and history, but it, it really helped with the cursive. I said, that identifies who you are. Yeah. I, I like to go John Hancock style. I just like to go as big as oh, yeah. possible with my cursive. Big as possible. So the king can see it. <laughs> exactly. That was it. That's oh. fantastic. Yeah. So those books that you just mentioned are the uh, Belden Boy books, right? Belden Boy And those series, are the, some yeah. of the ones that are about anti-bullying? It's a four book anti-bullying series. And it is, this is what a teacher would do. They're tied to core standards, state core standards. Oh, you just and can't help yourself with a teacher. can't style. help. <laughs> I lose it, you know, it's just, it's, in me. But it, it's for um, fourth grade or fifth grade for perspective. And it's also for figurative language because they're, it's country talk, you know, and how they talked in those days, but it's won four awards and one honorable mention. And so we, we, you know, put them with a little tie that goes around it. And this is like the belt buckle, of the old days. Yes, like they carry it. So that's a, that's a real good um, thing that the kids have. So but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I do want to mention one thing that I did in my classroom since this is a Please. teacher series. Yeah. Um, 
one thing that I knew that at the very beginning of the year, I had a lot of reluctant readers and definitely reluctant writers. So I would, I would, um, I set up a thing called Storytime Cafe and we had a big banner in the back. We put a little stool there with a coffee cup that was empty and it was only decaf for the fourth graders. Right. <laughs> Beatnik style, you know. Yeah. I had an old, um, everybody had gotten rid of the old um, transparency machines where the light would come up, but I kept grabbing mine every year and I put that up and the light would shine on them. We turn off the lights in the room and the kids would pretend they were drinking out of it and they'd sit back and they'd read their story while all their classmates would come around on the floor and sit and look up at them and, and listen. And those reluctant children who, who, um, didn't want to get up and do it by the end of the year they were going crazy we did it on a friday at the end of the week but by the end of the year everybody was up there wanting to read at storytime cafe and i used to say to them you know with history history is one of your best stories your best stories it can not only teach you so much but oh my gosh you know you learn that history history sometimes repeats itself and that's not always a good thing so you know we i just i'm just poor history at him constantly in writing and reading yeah so. and I'm sure that's the type of thing talking about that people the things that students will take with them for the rest of their life they're like even if they don't remember the particulars about the war of 1812 they definitely right. probably remember having that story time cafe you know and that's oh, yeah. like you said like that the relationship building part of it that it's been such a unique challenge during the last two years I think that's the stuff that is coming back now and you know I talk to a lot of teachers on the show and so I, I hear from people that are in the classroom you know each and every day still and that's the things that they're talking about me uh, to me yeah. about these days and again I, I, we just had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with someone who is uh, actually like every episode that we'll have we, we, we touch back in, we call them our classroom correspondent. So we kind of, you know, get to tell yeah. the story of the school year month by month through him and his students' eyes. And he was telling wow, me, that's good. He was telling me just as, you know, in September. So right as he was getting started, he was like, you know, with the way the last couple of years have been, I was thinking, man, if this year doesn't start right, if it seems as difficult as it has been, it might be starting start, time to start brushing up on my resume, getting out of here. But everything was so nice. It was like the best start to the year that he had had in, you know, a decade or so. And I think it was based on just, it was a lot easier to start building those relationships and all that feels a lot more uh, natural and more than it had been over the last couple of years. Right, right. That is good. That, and I hope that trend continues that, you know, they're going to be comfortable in the classroom again and really engage with the students and just have that, that relationship that's so important that the pandemic just tore apart. So, yeah. So yeah. with with your with your book series, I assume that's uh, writing that first book. Is that where you started getting the idea that you needed to put together a kind of a larger publishing apparatus to do this? And when the uh, the yeah. whistle slick mother daughter operation began, I'm curious about kind of the the origins of that and also the name. I'm curious. It's a very fun phrase to say, you know. Yeah, hard to spell. <laughs> hard to spell. I know. I was like, is it slick? Is it so slick? slick. I've had whistle stick. <laughs> it's just, a, it's just, it goes along with the book series because it's such a country name. You know, he it was as fast as whistle slick, like, I don't know, something like that. But it, I, I was going to totally believe you that that was a phrase. Yeah, fast as whistle, yeah. whistle slick. Sure. <laughs> Actually, my sister came up with it. So that's good. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's been fun it, and it's really unique, unique. And it, like I said, it just keeps growing and growing. So, 
Um, because I have, I've had, you know, with the camp and everything, I've had parents come to me and say, you know, do you ever have a camp for adults? And I say, yes, we'd love to. And we were going to do a wine and write, wine and write in the woods. We were going to do that in a little bit of alliteration there. Um, but um, some some events happened out in Galena that we couldn't do it. Um, so, but I'm still planning on on doing that because we have so many adult writers out there that they have a story and they want to go ahead and they would love nothing more to see it in book form. And so I, I am here as an educator to help adults now, to help them put their story in a book. And um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that's that's part of our new arm to our Whistle Slick Press. It's Whistle Slick Design. And um, the reason is, is because I'm going to tell you, this first book, when I wrote this, it's been about 13 years ago now, 12, 13 years ago. This little simple book, I tried to find a mainstream publisher, and it is really, really hard to get into it. And it was turned down like crazy. And then one day I had this angel that, you know, on the other end saying, we're going to publish it. Not a problem. And so your your book sounds wonderful and blah, 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 blah. Well, it cost $8,000, $8,000 out of my pocket to do this. And I thought, gulp. And then as I I signed their contract, and I've never had to sign a contract since then, but they had a contract, signed their contract, and they all disappeared. The illustrators disappeared. And I had about six illustrators on this small book, different illustrators. As soon as I criticized something or say, you know, could we do this? They were gone. They didn't want my account anymore. Um, the gentleman that was supposed to be working with me, he disappeared. So it took me a long time and $8,000 to get this done. And the kids loved it. And this book prompted a hotline at school. And what it did was I, my partner and I, uh, that I was in fourth grade with, we'd say to the children, they really thought Peter McDougal was a real life character. So Peter would, you know, through, this was the old email, through email, they'd sit there and say, and it was, um, we had the technology department set up a Peter McDougal email, you know, and the kids would write and say, I have this problem on the playground. So-and-so won't do this. And all these bully issues that were coming forth. And so we'd stay after school for hours answering them as Peter McDougal. It only lasted a couple of months because we were exhausted, but it really was um, a testament to how we needed to continue with the book series. So then I wrote the second book and it was my sometimes pal. And again, it's told from first person, which is Peter McDougal and in it about Frankie, who's the bully. So again, it perspective first two books on that. And it gets a little bit more intense and it's more of a storyline. The third book is from the bully's perspective of why everybody thinks he's a bully. He doesn't understand. And so Peter McDougal sitting in the background watching all this now. And this is really the bully's story. But the bully meets a new uh, schoolmaster in the school. And he's a bully. He's a bully to all the parents and the kids and everything. And the new girl that comes into town, into the community, she just sits back and watches so from the, the fourth book and the final book is from the girl's perspective. The one, she has a disability. She's blind in one eye, but that doesn't keep her down. And she helps to pull the kids together in the community. So girls, so we do, you know, just because it says Belden boy doesn't mean it's a boy's book series. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, and so that experience of publishing the first one is kind of what got the ball rolling on what ended right. up becoming Whistle Sling. Yes. Oh, I forgot to tell you, this one also cost, the second book was another $8,000. You think I'd learn my lesson? Right. Um, and this was from a publisher up in Minnesota that I thought was a great, going to be a great, great publisher. I won an award from um, principals across the country on this book, and they weren't even interested in publicizing it at all. They disappeared. So that's when the third book came along. And I said, I'm, I can't afford to be creative. And, <laughs> you know, this is getting expensive. This Ooh. cost me $300. That's, that's a pretty steep discount on that one. <laughs> $1,300. And that's when I learned whistle slick from that yeah. point on. How has it been working with your daughter for that? Oh, she's a hard taskmaster. <laughs> and, keep you in line. Oh, yeah. She is my marketer. Um, and so we we will put the um, Mary Jane on a flatbed. We bring her out from Galena. That's why we're in the DuPage County area here right now. And we're going to all these events like tomorrow at the Wheaton Nurseries in Wheaton. Um, but um, yeah, she's she's it's fun working with her. And she is my person that when we have an adult say, I've got a book, I've got something I want to turn into a book. Will you help me? She's the one that takes over and does it. Yeah, as you say, um, what, would, what would be your and not even from a publishing perspective, from a just creative standpoint? Mm -hmm. I've talked to so many teachers, whether you know, about you know, saying they want to write children's books or they want to write middle grade books. What would be just a, a quick piece of advice for people just trying to ignite their creativity, even if they feel like they, you know, they have an idea, but they don't necessarily how, know how to format it and how to actually write it in that way. The first thing you knew you need to do is to think about how you want this book to look. Do you want it to be um, hard copy? Do you want it to be a soft copy? What kind of illustrations do you want in it? Because the illustrations in a in a, a book like this um, really tell the story. You are really one with your your illustrator. Um, and I would say to them, but first, above all, try to think about um, an imprint that you want, like a logo. And ours is whistle mm -hmm. with the little boy who's blowing the whistle, leaning over. Um, think of an imprint and then Google the heck out of it to see if it pops up anyplace. And if it doesn't, it's yours. You know, the more marketing you do with that, the more it becomes your imprint. And um, then come to us and we will help you. We will guide you all the way because I don't want them to be caught like I was by a vanity printer who charges big bucks. And I have another friend who also got caught in that trap and they were, they were from New York complimenting her all the way. And then they asked for all these thousands of dollars to come their way. Sheesh. So, um, and we don't do that. We, it is a simple process. And I, I, again, I don't want them to go through the pitfalls that I did. So that's why I'm here to help them um, become a, an author. And we've, to date, we've only been doing this a year. We've probably uh, published about 15 books for people. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they keep coming back. Well, I've got a second one. I've got a series. I'm doing right. that. And they're just so thrilled. But we introduce them to the illustrator of their choice. We introduce them to the printer of their choice. And we just sit back and we tell them, okay, now you need to get the ISBN and the barcode. Oh, this yeah. is how to do it. Just so facilitating. We, yeah. We hold their hand all the way through. And um, yeah. And it's great. And I'm sure people can find some of those, some of those books on the Mary Jane Mobile whenever they find you out in, in the yes. <laughs> markets and stuff. It will be at the markets, but it's also online. It yeah, was yeah. 
um, press.com. Yeah, I was thinking about this when you were talking about really quick back to the to the bookmobile. I was thinking about how like that as a mascot for the publishing arm also makes sense yeah. because you mentioned yeah. that one of the things that inspired you to be an educator in the first place was your travels to Paris. So having a car yeah. as mascot, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah, yeah. Except I took a plane, Pan Am. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, when you said I did a lot of traveling, I was like, maybe she had an old green car. And I was like, no, those uh, can't really always, drive to Paris. <laughs> I know. I've always wanted one. And I live out in a farm community out in Galena, you know, yeah, with yeah. Nothing but touristy and farms. And so oh, yeah, uh, I grew up on a, yeah. on a in a farming community, too. I'm, I'm from Sandwich, Illinois. Backyard, oh, was, yeah. backyard was a literal cornfield. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it, I, I love it. And and, you know, and, and <laughs> on the side, part of what we do in our mission is not only to get books in the hands of all children, whether they can afford them or not. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I at my age now, I don't need to, to take in, you know, boatloads of money and what have you. But we give a very, very healthy portion, proportion back to dog sanctuaries, cat sanctuaries and farm sanctuaries that is where our goal is because um sanctuaries are are very important to me that's one of my things and you know why i hate to say this my grandpa when he came over from ireland he had a meat packing company yeah. and the and he used to get um creatures four-legged creatures from rochelle which is out there and and as a child, it was heartbreaking. So I stopped eating meat when I was 17 years old. And I'm I'm well into my 60s now. And we, over the pandemic, have all gone vegan. So that is what we do, is we just give back to sanctuaries. Yeah, one of the last of the, your books that I wanted to ask about, which I think is even slightly different, because this is more of a, of a novel, more so, is the Canary Songbook. Yeah. And you were telling me a little bit over email about that book's inspiration and yeah. the kind of the, the people in your life that part of that is kind of inspired by, right? Right. This book, um, this summer, I just got, uh, we went in June to Golden, Colorado, where the Colorado School of Mines is located. And I got to speak there about the book, the process of the book, the story of the book, because it was all mining um, where I went. And this is a story of my aunt who um, was born into a family. I, I changed the storyline just a sure. little bit. Had a lot more children in her family than than what I have in the book, which is just two. Limit your characters, you know. So um, <laughs> yeah, keep the cast manageable. Keep the cast manageable, right? But um, it is somewhat the true story of her life. And her um, her mother had passed away. And her father was left with um, all these children and he had to go into the mines and uh, and mine. He was in Southern Illinois. Um, I think she was born around Elizabethtown and I, down there. And um, so I called this man Cato. I gave it a fictitious name. But um, so she she went into an orphanage. That's all he could do with his kids. And he put them in there and um, they didn't have schooling. Um, they just worked hard. And in this fictitious story, somewhat, she had a terrible headmistress that was meaner than I'll get out. And she used to send the children into the into the basement to dust the cobwebs in the dark, um, just to be mean. And the kids were scared to death to do it. Um, but uh, she would do that. And uh, there was always a little light down there 
because it was so dark, there was a light with a candle that would just carry through. And, and the little girl, Faisy was her name, would sit there and say, what is that from? What is that? You know, but she could see what she was doing. So um, that's why we have the little mine uh, with the light underneath the orphanage. Um, but it is, it is a story that continues on with a mining disaster. Yeah. Um, and the headmistress has just gone crazed. And there's a reason why she's the way she is. But it, in part, was the true story of my dear Aunt Faye, who we just, she's, she just turned up, she will turn 105 this um, Sunday, but we just buried her three days ago. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your aunt, but yes, 100, and, almost 105 is incredible. Under, we still say she was 105 and you never saw such a celebration of life at that funeral out here. All the relatives came from a huge family, but um, but they all talked about the book and how nice it was to have this all in here. So, but this is a paranormal story. So I love paranormal. So I, I do too. That. Yeah, I've been doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was it was real good, real good. And the best chapter out of all of this is the mules. I love doing research, just like I did for the Bell and Blue. Listen, you're preaching to the choir in journalism over here, yeah. <laughs> research was to die for the mules. I never knew. What was the what was the research bit that sticks out to you? What were your favorite nuggets? On on this one, for yeah, of that research, yeah. For the research, it was the mules. I never knew that uh, mules were were tied like this and blindfolded, and then they go down into the mine and they would stay there for. 17 years, 18 years. And um, there was a miner that was down there. And in this story, Gabriel was a big Swedish miner and he took care of these mules um, because he had a hard time with the mines. He was so big, but he loved his animals and he would, he would take care of them and give them hay. And all you had to do was disconnect them at the end of their shift. And they would go down the tunnels and go right up into the earth stall that they had. But when they wanted to come up, out of the mine, they would again have to say they were getting old and they wanted to retire them out to the pasture. They would blindfold them and bring them up the same way. But then the mules started to smell the air was different. They started to smell clover and fresh air and sun, feel the sunlight and they went crazed. So they would start to try to get out of this binding that they were in and they'd pull them up. They And in the story, Gabriel could barely get that blindfold and the mule just took off running through the town, past the orphanage into the biggest field he could find just to eat clover and roll around in the grass. He was, it, it, it creates a craze in their mind because they're not- It's like sensory overload. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's so incredible. I, I didn't know that, that those mules are in there for years and years and years. Yeah. Sheesh. Yeah. yeah. And then they would get buttons on their back, just like the miners. And buttons was a term called call because I never knew that when the men went down into the mine, they would take their axe and their pick, but then they would walk literally another mile to where they were mining. It wasn't right there. Right, right, right. The shaft was right there. Yeah. But they walk another mile or a mile and a half and as they're walking the mine gets smaller and smaller like this and then they're all hunched over and their backs would scrape against the, the mine and for the mules they when the mules had that scratch mark they would have to put gasoline on it and so to burn it would burn at first but that would take care of infection wow 
That's fascinating. Yeah, my some of my my dad's family were coal miners in Wales and then coal miners in Pennsylvania once they immigrated wow. to the U.S. I'd love to learn more. I had no idea. That's so fascinating. I'd love to learn more. Yeah, yeah. That was I, I love the research. Can't yeah. beat research. Man. It's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Patricia, I, I've been keeping you. We're, we're close to an hour in here, so I've only got a few more questions for you, sure. and then I'll, I'll get out of your hair for you can enjoy the weekend. Oh, <laughs> you too. I'll get out of your hair. <laughs> no <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the last questions that we like to end, ask at the end of all of our interviews, and we might have touched on, you might have answered already throughout the course of our conversation. Anyway, I always just like the way that this frames things, which is, yeah, what's something about education? And we'll ask you a similar question after this, but what is something about education after all your years in it as a teacher that you just wish more people knew? Uh, I wish they knew, especially nowadays, that children look up to you. Children think of, obviously you're their mentor and their teacher, but children every day are, many children are leaving an environment and a house that, that, they look forward to coming to you, into the classroom, visiting their friends and, and um, learning. And I think as educators, with all the stress that's on educators right now, and I can remember the curriculum too that we used to have was like, you know, teach this, 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 this. Right. And I would, I would wink at my partner and say, just go in your room, just nod your head, go in your room, close the door and teach what they tell you to teach, but add so much more. And do it your way. So I I wish that educators could relax, have fun, engage in those students that may not be coming from such a happy existence at home, yeah. as they really look forward to coming to school. Don't look at them as a lot of work or it's just a job because then you should be out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last question is something that's very similar to that, but as a teacher, is there something about teaching itself that you think is more important than people might realize who aren't thinking about it all day, aren't in the classroom? Oh, and those people would probably be parents just to yeah. let the teachers do their thing. There is a method to our madness. I mean, <laughs> you know, when we're asking the children to do this and that, um, there's a reason. Have, have some trust, have some faith. And knowing that um, we know what we're doing, we are the professionals. And it took me many, many years, Peter. I was always at the, you know, the parents, I'd say, you want me to do this? Okay, I will, I will. I will. <laughs> then I stopped and thought, oh, wait a minute. I'm the one with the masters. I'm the one that's the professional. <laughs> Sit tight, you know. And I, I mean, I've had some situations where the parents have been very mad at me and for whatever. And, uh, and once you call them in, you sit them down, you talk to them, you know, explain why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and it's all for the benefit of their child, then they relax, but uh, just to relax, relax. There's so much tension and stress going on in the world today between the politics and the other, you know, down in floor, all the stuff that's going on. There's so much on everybody's plate, teachers included, just just give us your children and let us do what we do. All right. Well, Patricia, that was all I had for you. I can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your afternoon. Oh, this thank was you. an absolute pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like PJ. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing the podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, share it. It really does help us get even more perspectives on the show. Subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter if you want to keep up to date with everything happening to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's webpage over at WNIJ.org. The music that you hear each and every episode of this show is from the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs. You can find even more of their music over on WNIJ's show Sessions from Studio A, which is hosted, by the way, by one Spencer Tritt, who made our Teacher's Lounge logo. So shout out to you. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.